1: Hello fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host Steve Dawson coming to you from the Henhouse Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records so I thought I'd make a podcast bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them each month i'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest it may be a musician a songwriter a producer or an engineer but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Well, hi there, music nerd. Welcome back to the ongoing Season 3 of the podcast. I hope you've had a chance to listen to all the latest episodes. Make sure you do. If you've missed any, go back and listen. What do you have to lose? It's just going to take 19 hours of your life. Go for it. My guest this month is the great harmonica player, best known for his work with Willie Nelson since the early 1970s, Mr. Mickey Raphael. All episodes of this podcast are brought to you from the Hen House Studio, just south of Nashville, Tennessee. It's my own place where I work recording and producing for bands and solo artists from all over the world. If you're in need of a recording or mixing facility or some tracks for your next project, feel free to check it out at thehenhousestudio.com and you're always welcome to drop me a line about working together on your music or if you'd like to comment on the podcast, feel free to reach out and contact me at steve at thehenhousestudio.com Now on to this month's episode. First off, let me just give you a quick disclaimer regarding the audio quality. I try to get these shows sounding as good as I possibly can, but Mickey was on a cell phone somewhere on tour with Willie Nelson, and I'm kind of at the mercy of his cell reception. So there's some dropouts and noise and weird, um, you know, digital nonsense. But hopefully you can just roll with it. All right, with that out of the way, Mickey Raphael. He is a spectacular harmonica player and one of the most consistently working ones on the planet. He's held down the harmonica chair in Willie Nelson's family band since 1973. It was one of, really one of those situations where he was sitting in with the band one night, and then about 45 years later, he has safely assumed that he's in the band. We'll get into how that happened and lots more here today. Uh, Mickey's also an active session musician. He's played with an incredible list of performers, including Jason Isbell, Emmylou Harris, Towns Van Zant, Tom Morello, Calexico, Bob Dylan, Ray Charles, etc., etc., etc. Oh, and when he has time off from uh, Willie these days, he hops on the Chris Stapleton tour bus and plays with those guys. Busy dude. Mickey is an incredibly versatile and expressive player, and it was a real joy to speak with him about his approach to the instrument sessions with Willie Nelson, including some of the great records like Stardust and Teatro, some of my favorite Willie records, Redheaded Stranger, uh, Life on the Road with Willie, and lots more. You can check out Mickey's website at MickeyRaphael.com. You can see some cool videos there and find out where he'll be performing with Willie Nelson, Chris Stapleton, or whoever he may be playing with. My conversation with Mickey Raphael is coming up in just a minute. All right, now we need to take care of just a little bit of business before we get going. I want to tell you how you can get behind the show and support it. There's a bunch of ways to do it. Go to iTunes, subscribe, leave a comment, a good comment, preferably, and spread the word. Tell all your friends. Uh, You can also financially support the podcast with a one-time donation, which is great, or by contributing monthly through our Patreon site. All that information is on my website at stevedawson.ca. You go to the podcast page. And right at the top are the two ways to contribute to the show. So if you want to consider doing that, that's a big help. Uh, Also, this year, we have t-shirts and maybe some other swag a little bit later as the season progresses. That's also at the same website, stevedawson.ca podcast page. It's all right there at the top. Any of those ways that you feel inclined to help out the show would be greatly appreciated. And lastly, a word from this week's sponsors, Union Tube and Transistor. They have some new products coming down the line. First of all, they're doing a killer new guitar signal splitter called the GBX95. It allows you to split your guitar to up to 6 amps plus a DI, which is actually way harder to do than it should be. Very handy for recording multiple guitar amps. Next, they're about to release their 343 guitar amp. It features a very unique 10 and 12 inch speaker switching feature. You can run one or both speakers for tonal options. And finally, their Lab compressor pedal is a little optical compressor and is killer, both in front of a guitar amp or as a piece of outboard studio gear. I use one pretty much all the time. Head on over to uniontone.com to find out more. All right, then, let's do this. Here is this month's episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Maybe we could start by talking just a little bit about how uh, how you got into playing harp in the first place. Like, I know you grew up in Dallas, and... Um, you were sort of playing around the, the the folk scene there and and stuff, and just wondering about some of your er, your early experiences playing music and and uh, you know what got you into playing harmonica in the first place. And I mean, the
2: first harmonica player. Well, my a friend of my dad's had a harmonica when I was growing up and gave me my first harmonica. Okay. So you know I kind of carried around, but I wanted to be a musician and I, I was trying to play guitar, but it was it was too. It just not any good. And I was in the mm-hmm. went to the see this this I went to this little folk club in Dallas called the Ruby Yeah. And saw Johnny Vandevere, who was this great flat picker, kind of Doc Watson style oh, yeah yeah. Uh, songwriter. I mean singer. And uh, he had a harmonica player and the guy's name was Donnie Brooks. And when I heard this guy play, it just totally, you know, blew me away.
1: He's the guy that ended up playing with with Waylon Jennings, right? Right. And so what was his what was his whole trip? Like was he an older guy? Like he must have been a lot older than
2: you were. You were just a kid, right? No, I was probably about 3 or 4 years. Old. Well, he's probably 21. I might have been 15 or something. Oh, okay. Or 16, maybe I was driving. So I might have been still a little older.
1: Yeah. And
2: you know, high school age. Hard.
1: And was he like pretty advanced on the on the harmonica at that point?
2: Yeah, he was He was, I mean, he was blowing your mind. Yeah, he was blowing my mind. So I don't know how good he was back then. But, but I think he yeah. I think he was might uh, have been living in New York at that time and doing sessions and stuff.
1: Yeah, like in those days when you were just starting, did you take lessons or anything, or were you totally self-taught?
2: No, nah, there's self-taught. There's no way you can take lessons on. <laughs> I mean, nowadays there are, but there's no. But you know, there was nobody. I mean, I mean, he taught me. Who's going to teach? You know, there's not that many harmonica players, so uh, yeah. he was the only one that I knew of. And uh, but he said that we sat down behind the ruby on the steps, you know, like a back area and he showed me uh how to play a diatonic scale on the harmonica Just showed me the, that pattern yeah. and that's kind of the basics for everything i do you know lick wise right right so.
1: as far as what you do do you always play diatonic harps like do you ever play chromatic
2: mm-hmm. no i play chromatic you do okay i don't know if I- a little bit i mean i'm not the best chromatic player
1: uh-huh. And so did he, like, did you actually sit down and, like, take lessons from him? Or you just, or he showed you a couple things, like, here and there, and then you just kind of... No, he, he,
2: you know, I've never heard of... No, no, I mean, now, back then, there were no lessons.
0: Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah, he just sat down on the back steps between sets, and he showed, he rode out, blow, I mean, draw hole number one, blow hole number two and three, draw three and four, yeah. blow four, five, six, something like uh-huh, that, you know. Wrote uh-huh. it, it on a napkin.
1: <laughs> that's cool. I hope you kept the
2: napkin. <laughs> well, you know, I have to keep rewriting it to remember. Rob, to
1: <laughs> and so, how old were you when you started playing around Dallas? Like, were you just a kid?
2: When I was playing with other people, it was high school. Okay. You know, I had a, a friend of mine play guitar, and I would just, he would just jam. It. Yeah. And that's the way you learn. You got to play with somebody.
1: Totally, totally. And, and like, what was going on? Like, did Dallas have a pretty good kind of folk scene or something at the time? Like, who... who, who
2: it did have a folk, great folk scene because the Rubio... Yeah. Was, I mean, Michael Murphy, George F. Walker, Guy Clark, Ray Wiley Hubbard, B.W. Stevenson, who I was my first gig, really.
1: He had oh. some hit back then, right? Um,
2: well, no, I was with him before the hit. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, we, you know, there was a great music scene, but there was also a great rock scene, and that, that was kind of... I was, you know, my first influences also were... Besides the folk guys, you know, like John Sebastian, Sonny Terry, were, were, were the English, you know, guys with, uh, you know, Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones, um, John Mayall, sure. Yeah. So I really wasn't wasn't a, a Chicago blues guy, you know. You know, it's more into, as a young kid, more into the English uh, English invasion. But I would go. There was a good, great concert scene, and I w- remember one night going to see Candi.
1: Nice, like
2: yeah. And I got home and I had my harmonica with me or something, and it was so inspiring. I went home and I was able, I accidentally played a lick. It was like my <laughs> first blues lick. And I thought, holy shit, you know, there's a... <laughs>
1: you just flipped into it.
2: Yeah, there's a message to this. And ironically, as it is, their big song was on the road again.
1: Yeah. A different version, a different song.
2: Oh, yeah. But <laughs> still the same title.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's hilarious, man. Were you doing any studio work around Dallas at that point, too? Or was that even, did that even happen?
2: No, that came later. Like when I was in high school yeah. or a senior in high school, there was a, a studio that would do, you know, country demos or jingles and stuff. The, Dallas was a big jingle town. Oh, really? Yeah, big commercial. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of bank packages and a lot of, uh, you know, uh, j- just, they did. there was a big production company, Tom, there, TM Productions that would do, you know, lots of jingles. So I would get hired, well, I'd go to the studio and after school, and the engineer there with whoever was in there said, "Oh, you know, do you need harmonica on this?" And I did, they just had me kind of wait in the lobby, just kind of hang out with my <laughs> harmonicas, and say, "Hey, you want harmonica on this?" And we got this harmonica player. And uh, I remember this one guy, Bobby West, who was a. a, a, a you know, a writer and he'd demo all these songs yeah. and he'd pay, uh, it's like, come on in and pay, he'd pay $5 a song. Nice. So it's like, you know, okay, they'd play me the song first and I'd record. Then it got to the point where it's like, no, nah, I don't even want to hear it first. Let's just record it. <laughs> you know, just,
1: Five bucks is five bucks, man.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's just keep going. You know, see how many we can get in in an hour. <laughs> uh,
1: and, and were those like just straight up jingles, like, uh, well, well the, I didn't do so many
2: jingles, but I did more country demos and shit
1: Okay, anything that, that ever would have got released, or was it all just literally demos? No, no, it's
2: all local, you you know, some somebody, someone, you know, sold a refrigerator so she could come in and be a singer Oh,
1: nice, okay
2: My mentor there was this guy named Smokey Montgomery, who was a banjo player for the Light Crest Doughboys Oh
1: yeah, nice, that's a good country name too
2: Yeah, <laughs> so they... Uh, you no, know, he was like the music director at that studio, and uh, you know he would bring me in on different sessions and stuff. So I kind of learned, you know, how to record there, you know, and just kind of the tricks of the trade. You know, if you make a mistake and nobody see, nobody notices, keep your mouth shut, go back and fix it later. You know, <laughs> uh, were
1: you were you always like in those early days? Were you always recording straight like into microphones and stuff? Or were you experimenting with amps or anything
2: yet? No, it was always straight into a mic.
1: Okay. Did you even know that, that people used amps for harmonicas? Or-
2: yeah, but I wasn't so much into the blues, into that Chicago blues sound at that time. Right. Okay. Um, and you know, I don't. Maybe I had an amp. I mean, I because I, I wasn't playing with the band or the, the stuff when I would play publicly. It was it was the folky thing,
1: right? And You didn't okay.
2: have amps for that, right? So it wasn't. Still, maybe it wasn't until you know later. I mean, even playing with BW, I can't remember if I played. I always just played to the PA.
1: Yeah, you know? that's what you do, right? So, Yeah. You mentioned that you weren't really into Chicago blues yet at that point. Like, who were the people that you'd heard? Like, Charlie McCoy, probably, and,
2: like, was it... Charlie McCoy, Charlie Musselwhite. Okay. Um, Paul Butterfield was my favorite and, and, and later mentor and friend. And then I, then once you hear these guys, you know, the guys that are closer to your age, then you go back and you research, where did they learn it from? And that's, you know, when Little Walter, and Big Walter Horton. Slim Harpo those guys you know, Jimmy Reed
1: were you inspired to sit down and like learn their harp solos and stuff like you must have had some time where you actually like learn people's solos right
2: no you know what it's weird because I never learned the solos lick for lick okay and uh, I was even asking because you know, I did this thing with uh, uh, um, with Marcella so we did Bright Lights Big City yeah. and I asked her, I said you know Bright Lights Big City has this harp part that everybody, his specific hard part that Jimmy Reed played, and everybody plays it, and if, you know, how should I approach it? Should I play that lick? Because going to be kind of sacrilegious if I did it, you know, if I didn't do it like Jimmy Reed. And he goes, no, you're not Jimmy Reed. Do it like Mickey.
1: Good advice.
2: You know, so I said, ah, oh, I, I never thought about that. Yeah, because let me tell you, you know, if I try to copy Little Walter, it'll sound like me trying to copy Little Walter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear you. You know, so I think that that may be top out. But it's, uh, you know, of course, I study that shit. I just don't try to play it. I can't play it note for note. Yeah,
1: yeah. You mentioned Butterfield. Where did you end up meeting him? And, and like, what do you remember about hanging out with that guy? And
2: I met him to, to Leon Russell. Took me to see him. Oh, really? He, said, he called me up and said, have you ever seen that Paul Butterfield? I said, no. He said, well, he's playing. I was living in L.A. at the time. huh so he's playing at the Roxy with Ringo and Gary Busey, who's a friend of mine, now, Rick Danko. Wow.
1: Although
2: no, he was he wasn't playing with Ringo, but Ringo was there. So uh, Leon came out, drove out in his pickup truck, picked me up. We went down to the Roxy and he introduced me to Butter. And I was just so, you know, oh, you know, in love with his playing. He was just a monster, just amazing. And then uh, didn't hang with him then, but then maybe a couple of years later, I get a call remember how we hooked up he called me or something and said hey i hear you're in new york let's hang nice so i said sure you know so of course i was a nervous wreck and stuff.
1: <laughs> was he pretty intimidating or was he just a, a, a
2: no nice he guy? was you know to other harmonica thing was i knew him for a couple of years uh-huh. and, and i never said i was a harmonica
1: player oh really
2: <laughs> so i think he when he figured it out i think I think he respected the fact. He said every young car player out there is trying to duel him, you know, and I kind of knew, you know, but he really kind of took me under his wing. And so in this, we met in New York and I took him to, at that time our manager managed Miles Davis. So I was, I was going to Miles's Miles' 60th birthday party in New York and I brought Butterfield with me. Crazy. And afterwards we're just walking the streets. We're, we're walking back to my hotel and it's like two in the morning or something and we're playing <laughs> Are, you know just walking playing and he's kind of showing me some stuff i'm kind of not really just showing me what to play kind of telling me what not to play you know like don't ever end the lick on that note that kind of thing. okay and the fact that he would even share that stuff with because it was very non-threatening and he was very supportive you know but we were walking you know in the middle of the night and um up madison you know walking back uptown and and, and the, the harmonicas are like just echoing off the buildings <laughs> it, was, it was pretty it's pretty cool yeah
1: I wish there was a recording of that that would be cool well
2: <laughs> uh, what the hell is there's not but there is a recording of he and I playing is there I did this uh, later like in 88 these guys these friends of mine had a little independent label mm-hmm. and uh, what it was we just turned on the tape machine and made a keyboard player and we just made up songs and cut this album all instrumental but butter came by the studio one day. And we uh, just recorded it with he and I just playing off each other.
1: Oh, man. Is that out? Did that get released?
2: Well, yeah. It, it got released in 88. It was called uh, Hand to Mouth. And that's, that's, that's you can get it on iTunes. Okay. And that's actually the name of the song that uh, Butter and I cut.
1: That must have been a bit of a thrill then. Uh-huh. He was, he was in fine form up, up through that time? Or was he like, did he? At- well,
2: he was in and out of rehab. Yeah. But yeah, he was playing great. I mean, you can just check it out. I mean you can get the song
1: Yeah, I will for sure. I didn't know that existed. That's so cool. Um, can I ask you what the hell Miles Davis's sixtieth birthday party was like?
2: Well, it was in a you know, it was in some space in New York and I think there was a VJ from N T V there and something. Oh, but I'd met uh Peter Wolf. Oh yeah. And who I'm a big fan of who I just actually spoke with yesterday and I love his heart playing. Yeah, he's great, isn't he? Yeah, and he's been a good friend throughout the years.
1: So I'm sure you've talked about this a million times, but I'd, I'd love to hear about how you first hooked up with, with Willie. Uh, I know it's, it was sort of a, a classic right place at the right time scenario. Can you just tell me a bit about how that happened? Yeah,
2: totally. Well, I got a call from Coach Royal, who was the coach of the University of Texas football team, and a friend of Willie's and a real patron of the arts, a yeah. you know, real supporter, patron of... He was a patron saint of Texas musicians, I'd say. And he said, hey, we're having a little picking party after the game this weekend. I'd like to meet you. If you're around, come bring some of your harmonicas. Nice. You know, and we'll play. And I did. And he's, Willie was there, who I did not know. Mm-hmm. Um, like
1: you'd never heard of him or you didn't know personally?
2: Well, I, you know, I, because BW was on uh, – because BW was on uh, – um, RCA, I, I'd had a chance to go into the locker and get whatever albums I wanted. Okay. Um, there was a Willie record called Willie and Family, and it was all, these, all his family and everybody on, the, uh, on his farm at Ridgetop. And it was such a weird picture. I took the album. So I was familiar. <laughs> I listened to it. I was familiar with it. Yeah. So I was kind of familiar with Willie, but I didn't know anything about his history. So then, you know, I meet him, and I'm, uh, Charlie Pride was there, who I had met before. My dad was a interior designer and had done some work with him. So I'd been over to his house, to Charlie's house. But I, I didn't grow up around country music. I didn't know that music at all. So
1: hanging with, with Willie and Charlie Pride was no big deal?
2: Well, Charlie, you know, at that time, I mean, I'm sitting there on the floor and the coach was like the biggest star in the room. <laughs> um, so, uh, but Willie, he played night Nightlife and Funny How Thompson's way, Away. And I'm thinking, oh, I've heard these songs because I knew them from Ray Charles or Aretha, you know, or B.B. King. And I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. And well, he said, "Hey, if you ever if were playing anywhere, uh, you know, come sit in with us." So I thought, "Hey, this would be cool." You know, I'm the nineteen, twenty year old, you know, Jewish kid in Dallas with a big afro, you know, <laughs> or uh, you know, it uh, would be fun to play with a country band. Yeah. And so I went and sat in with them. They were playing a, a benefit in a high school gymnasium in Dallas. Yeah, in uh, south of Dallas, Lancaster. Okay. So it was like in the gym, and I drove down there, went in to play, and I didn't know any of the songs, you know. Even And, and it was mainly a dance, so we would play Frawline four or five times a night because it was a, two, a song you could two-step to, you know, you could dance to. <laughs> and people would come up and request these songs, and we were playing a dance. And after that, we went to a truck stop afterwards, uh, you know, for breakfast, which every band does usually, you know, it's like, um, when you're traveling at night. And we went in for our chicken fried steak, obligatory chicken fried steak at 1 in the morning. And I'm getting ready to leave, and I thought, shit, I'll have one more cup of coffee. And that last cup of coffee, Willie says, hey, we're going to New York in a couple of months. Why don't you go with us? And he was going to play Max's Kansas City. Which was a punk club in New York that Waylon had played. But, uh, you know, the Bloddy, I think it's gotten one of their starts there.
1: That would have been much later, right? Like that—that that, the punk scene wasn't happening yet, was it? Or what year are you talking about here?
2: No, no. Uh, um, no, it, this was 73. Right, So, okay. yeah. Um, so this was, and also this was, I think, by November, December of 72. Okay. So I started sitting in with it, just showing up on weekends to try to learn the band, the music and stuff. Uh-huh. And then I ended up leaving BW and coming on weekends to sit in with Willie. So, you know, there's a story that uh, where Willie asks Paul, what are we paying Mickey? And Paul says, We're not paying him anything. He's just coming to sit in and says, Well, double his salary.
1: <laughs> and now you're tripled. Yeah, yeah, I gotta ask him again. <laughs> uh that's crazy. So you just you just kinda were there and you never left.
2: Yeah, that that's what I tell people. They said I I was never hired, but I was never officially hired, but then I was never asked to leave. So
1: Perfect. And so what was what was the touring situation like in those days for for the for the band? Like were you out constantly or was it like weekends and stuff? Or what was the with Willie,
2: it was kind of weekends. We've just we'd really uh yeah, we would just we'd take our own cars. He didn't have a bus or anything. We'd take our own cars and meet at the venue. There would be some real funky ass you know, there was a place in Round Rock, Texas called Big G's that was one of these places that was always fights breaking out and um Chicken wire. Yep. Well, it didn't have the chicken wire, but it was one of those places. Probably after the chicken wire phase, but it needed <laughs> it. And I would wait in my car till Paul or Willie got there, and I'd walk in with them. You okay. Know, you know, and you had hippies and and rednecks, and you know the Armadillo was really big in Austin,
1: uh-huh.
2: and it you know you mixed the the two, and I was definitely not you know a redneck, and uh, you know, but these were the joints we were playing. The, the, this club was not a place that young that hippies were hanging out like the Armadillo. Right, I see. I saw so, my particular look, you know.
1: So, in those days, like I know a lot of those Texas guys and Willie included spent a lot of time touring Texas. Like, is that something that were you guys traversing the state or were you all over the country?
2: Yeah, we'd play all over town. I mean, Willie, it got to where, yeah, Willie left Nashville, moved to Texas, and it's like, I'm, and he, but he toured all over the country before and Europe. Mm-hmm. But it's like, we're just going to come back. And, you know, he, uh, he got really popular in Texas, and it's like, why, uh, you know, why be a, a small dog? You, you know, the Stones asked us to, to, to open up their world tour uh, in 73, 73 or four, I forget what year. And nice. I was thinking, great, that would be so cool. And Willie goes, no, you know, why be an opening act when we can be headlining here? But I mean, still back then we were just <laughs> playing clubs and stuff at dance halls.
1: So, even, so. W- even with Willie's history at that point of like being a killer songwriter, there was the crowds weren't that big?
2: No, because he was known as a songwriter, not a singer, really. Okay. So okay. they were small, you know, it was a kind of a niche market there. The people that no, and they weren't coming for to hear his necessarily. I mean, some were coming to hear the songs, but other were coming because he was because they wanted to dance. Right. And we played country music.
1: So he did. He turned the stones down. He didn't do the tour. No, we
2: didn't do the tour.
1: That's hilarious.
2: I hate. I've hate. I hate him to this day.
1: <laughs> Can you tell me a bit about like your role in in the band? Like, obviously, I know what you're. Role is everyone does. You're, you've been a huge part of his sound for so long, but like, how how did you find fitting in from from your perspective musically? Like in a way, Jimmy Day had been the that chair for a long time, and and then he didn't replace Jimmy Day when when he was gone, uh, and you were sort of in that role. Like, how did you?
2: I had nobody copy. It was real. I'm still. So I still don't know what to play on the Whiskey <laughs> River. I'm still searching for it. Still different every night. Um, and that, that's the deal. You know, he, he wouldn't replace Jimmy with another steel player.
1: That was like a conscious thing where he was like, we're not, we're done with steel. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's just like when Jody passed, we didn't replace, we didn't get another guitar player.
1: Okay. Did Willie give you much, um, you know, input into what he wanted from you or anything?
2: Nothing. 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 just really, the only thing he might say is when to play.
1: Okay. Okay and And what about like you know how you approached it as far as like whether you know sometimes some of that early stuff that i s that I watch of you and Willie playing like um I don't know. There's a thing I saw the other day of of Georgia where you guys are playing it in like a barn or something, and you're ripping like pretty, pretty super bluesy solos. Like it's awesome, but uh, but it really sticks out as being different from his approach. Like was he encouraging you in any? No, no,
2: he wouldn't say anything. He just, you know, (laughs) no. But you know what? I can't uh, Georgia. I might, you know, I had Butterfield again was the influence. He would tell me to play the melody. You know, and that's really what I did was just play what a singer would be singing. Um, With some embellishments, I mean, it was a little busy back then because I was just, you know, young and high and whatever, you know, younger. (laughs) And when you're younger, you play louder and too much. But, uh, you know, I've toned it down to where Uh I just really play what, you know, I I think like a singer, you know, what would a singer do or what would King Curtis do? You know, I love his phrasing. I would, uh, you know, I'd listen to him. I would listen to um maybe Donnie, how he would approach a country song with with Wayland or or Charlie McCoy. But we, Willie's stuff, you know, that helped when we were doing stand, you know, covers. But uh-huh. with Willie, it was it was really a jazzier feel or a looser yeah. feel. Yeah. So I really had to dig into, you know, I listened to love Miles Davis. Um uh-huh. I mean to, just to get ideas what, you know, it wasn't like I was copying him. And we actually spent time with Miles because Mark Rothbaum, our manager, managed Miles too. He came out and we played Vegas, and he spent a week with us. Really? And he'd sit on sit on my side of the stage every night. Like he would play with you? He was sitting in. No, the- no, 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 no. He just sit. No, he just came to hang out.
1: He he just dug Willie. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's crazy. Do you like? Did you ever have any conversations with Miles? Oh yeah,
2: yeah. He came over for dinner, and uh, you know, I lived in California at the time. And, you know, I was with, uh, my girlfriend was Allie McGraw and, oh, really? Uh, and he knew her through Steve McQueen. Okay. So, you know, we, you know, she, he would come over and she'd cook him dinner. You know, he'd come over, he was married to Cicely Tyson at right. the time. So they'd come over, you know, for dinner and, and then he had a hip replacement, so he wouldn't, he couldn't drive. So I would drive him around Malibu and just, we'd go pick up his paints or something, or, you know, I'd go, just go with him to run errands and stuff. Wow, that's crazy. Except we were in my car now, there's Ferrari. He didn't let me drive his Ferrari. Really?
1: (laughs) Um, So, with Willie, like you've played on so many of his records, but I know the first one was Redheaded Stranger. Yeah. um, Which is such a crazy, cool, unusual record. Like it was a big left turn for him. and And I know that the label when it was turned in thought it was demos and stuff like that that's sort of a famous story for that record
2: yeah it was the first record that he did with the band you know and that was right. his deal that he could turn the record in
1: yeah
2: you know we, we were in the studio and, and uh, um, hadn't heard any of the songs and he said i've got this idea for this record this concept album and he came in with pieces of paper and napkins with the songs written on it and uh we would just we'd all set up in the room together. And he would just play it. We'd play along with him. And that's why it's so sparse, because we were really hearing the songs for the first time. So maybe there was like two or three takes at the most for these songs.
1: Wow. And were you aware of, how, of while this was going down that this was the record? Or were you also in the dark about?
2: Yeah, I kind of knew. I mean, Willie says we're recording a record. What did I okay. know? You know, it's the first time in the studio with him. Yeah. So I was hoping, you know, and I didn't, I came when they were doing a, uh, I came to work when they were doing phases and stages, which I didn't play on. And that was a Jerry Wexler produced that. Right. You know, and he was one of my heroes. Totally. So the fact that Willie says, okay, now we're going to do it with the band, you know, with our band. Yeah. You know, I was just excited to do that.
1: And do you remember how, like, would you have been set up, like, really all close together playing um acoustically more or less? Yeah, or? They, we,
2: we were. I mean, yeah. I have, I saw pictures of it the other day. I sat next to Willie. Uh-huh. B, the bass spears, or bass player, sat next to me. Yeah. And then Jody was kind of next to him. And then Bobby was in another room. I guess she, there was some separation with them. But me, okay. Jody, Jody would play through a, an amp. Yeah. Um, and Willie played through his amp that was mic'd. And B, I don't know if he went direct or not. But I would just, I had a mic. I had like a Neumann, you know, on a stand.
1: Just lean in and play.
2: Mm-hmm. Lean in and play. And you're hearing it for the first time. So, um, that's what's cool about that record. It wasn't like we had a lot of time to learn the songs or work up arrangements. It's totally stream of consciousness, you know. Just a-,
1: a lot of the best stuff is right.
2: Yeah, I guess so. And that's the best I work. I mean, usually my first or second attempts, you know, yeah. at a track. Was there
1: the was there any of that album that was labored over, or was it all done really quick?
2: No, like it was done quick. To... If you didn't play on it, or like, but you know, if you did not play on it. it When we did it, it was it. That was it. There were I don't think we did that many overdubs, if any.
1: It doesn't sound like it, but I mean, if you if there was a good take and you didn't like the harmonica solo, would you do it again or would you just keep your mouth shut?
2: No, I'd be shut. Well, you know, if I could, if if I didn't like it, no. Well, you know the. There was stuff that went by so quick that I didn't barely play it on because it's like, I don't even know the song. And Willie goes, No, we're done.
0: <laughs> yeah. So we move on
2: to the next yeah. song. No, I would not in a position to say, Let me fix that. Or, you know, or Willie said, Yeah, I like that. Or that's it. So, you yeah. know.
1: Yeah. Do you remember doing Blue Eyes Crying, Crying in the Rain? Did you play on yeah. that song? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, do you remember yeah. that one going down for the first time?
2: Yeah. And that wasn't his song. You know, that was a, yeah. a, a standard. Um, but yeah, because I played the echo, that echo harm to think that sounds oh, right. like an accordion.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So tell me about like, from musically, from your point of view, you were coming from like rock and blues sort of country background. But with Willie, like a lot of the tunes are pretty complicated. You know, there's a lot of jazz oriented changes. Yeah. Uh, how did, how were you, and you weren't a, a trained musician. So how were you navigating the musical end of things?
2: You know, I would do everything by ear. And if, if I physically didn't have the notes or the changes, I wouldn't play. Okay. You know, I would just stay, if I didn't know what to do, I would lay out. Um, <laughs> yeah. I would just keep it simple or I would play, you know, play a pad. You know, I wouldn't, uh, um, you know, that's why that echo up that double read. thing uh blue eyes crying in the rain Willie takes a solo but that's all you need you know i just played a little coloring underneath it with that uh, thing but yeah if there was something you know like nightlife is a little complicated yeah and but it's basically a blues song where it gets crazy is if it's changing Is when we do standards so you have to play a melody you can't really improvise because most stuff with willie i can improvise on Uh but like for playing you know we just did the sinatra record the Sinatra covers
1: yeah I wanted or, to ask you about that yeah
2: yeah so there was stuff so I mean M- Matt Rollins co-produced the record okay. and arranged it and so I mean we're in and he wants a particular harmonica part it's written you know he writes it out or he'll play he'll sing it to me or play it for me.
1: do you read music
2: uh you know I can uh, not sight read but if mm-hmm. he writes a part out and it's on you know they wanted to you know, I had to play it on chromatic harp because okay. they wanted me to follow a line that was already recorded either with a you know, they're going to put a horn line on there. Or there's a piano line that he wanted to fo- me to follow the notes. Yeah. You know, he wanted specific notes. But a lot of times I'll just go in like on my way or a lot of the, reg- the uh, one for my baby is just improvised. But let's um, see, Summer Wind uh, and Foggy Day. Um, I can't remember any of the other songs and titles. But if there's a specific line he wanted, you know, I had to play it as written. You know. But he would teach it to me or we would figure it out. Yeah. you know, where, where good. maybe they were going to write a whole string chart to this uh, or a horn line to this particular lick. Okay. So that at, at that point it was not an improvised. And I have to have it. I'll write it. He'll write it out or tell me what the notes are, and then I'll write it in my own notation so I, I know where the notes are on the harmonica.
1: You have a way of you have a way of notating for yourself.
2: Yeah, I write hold number four, blow. Okay. <laughs> uh,
1: so that actually that's something I was curious about. Like you and Willie have this like not a lot of. Um, talking about it just happens kind of through yeah. your magic way of doing things. Do Are there producers that kind of try and get in the middle of that? Like, does that ever happen where you get somebody that sort of tries to interfere with the simplicity of of what you guys are doing and tries to like overproduce that, that interaction that you, that you and Willie have together?
2: No, no, nobody gets, they know they wouldn't be working with Willie if they, first of all, they wouldn't tell Willie what to play. Yeah. Um, I'm open to suggestions. So our producer, Buddy Cannon, will just usually have me play a lot on a song, top to bottom, and then we'll pick and choose what we want to use. Okay. But, uh, and he'll, you know, he'll get three or four uh, takes and, uh, you know, that we're happy with and then just comp, conf- you know, just pick the best pieces of it. Yeah. Uh, or the best take all the way through. So uh, with Willie, there's but nobody, nobody's telling us what to play, especially somebody outside. Uh, and then Willie again, if he's going to be hands on, w- would not, would never tell me what notes to play. It's just a matter of it's just like take the solo, or to, you know, fill here. I mean, like we just did. We we're just in the studio with Van Morrison, and my only real dialogue with Van was, you know, he said just take take the second half of the solo. You know, nobody would tell me what to play unless you know unless we're playing a, a standard and they want you to play the melody or yeah yeah. But they, they usually hire me. I mean, that I, I, I'm hired because. I guess because I, I know how to interpret the song. Now, if somebody has a specific idea or they want a particular line, you know, melodic line to be played, they can tell me that.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: You know, I'll tell them to go fuck themselves.
1: <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> totally. <laughs> uh, with the My Way record that just came out, uh, how did you record that album? Like, were you in the in the room with strings and stuff or was that all done in stages? No,
2: that was all, no, the rhythm tracks were done in L.A. Oh, okay. With uh, Matt and then uh, Jay Belarose, and,
1: oh, it is uh, Jay. So, okay, I
2: wonder. Yeah, and i forget the, the bass player's name. It's another guy who works with Jay and uh, uh, Dean Parks' uh-huh. guitar. And then I they brought it to Nashville, and I overdubbed my parts myself. And then I think four or five pieces were, you know, I had string arrangements that's done later.
1: And Willie was, like, the vocals were done live with the rhythm section?
2: No, Willie oh. was done later. In fact, you see it, they made the studio look like, uh, like the uh, L.A. studio. Oh really? Okay Yeah. So those videos you see, everybody's in a different state
1: Okay So he, does he normally work that way? Like where the tracks get done? Yeah, he
2: likes to overdub Like even the other day when we cut with Van We cut with Van and the band And Van's band And then Willie was out on the bus And uh, as soon as we got a track done that we liked Willie'd come in and uh, overdub
1: Wow And so why do you think he prefers to do that?
2: Don't know just how, the way he is.
1: How do you, how do you, because so much, it seems to me like so much of what you do is based off of his phrasing and stuff
2: like that. How do you deal with... Yeah, it's, I come back and I overdub after he puts his part on, if I'm not, if I think it clashes.
1: Oh, okay. Wow, that's that's sort of a, a cat and mouse game a little bit. Yeah,
2: we kind of keep that open. I mean, it's, I mean, I played a solo, so he wasn't on there, but a lot of times I'll play underneath his solo. Yeah. But, um... Didn't really need to uh, do it on, on this last track, but that's what we'll do. I'll Usually I'll wait um, till Willie's on there. Yeah. Um, till I do my overdub. If we're not cutting live, I mean, sometimes we cut live, but right now because Willie's in, not with us in Nashville and the studio band we use is in Nashville. Yeah. And Buddy, you know, our producers is in Nashville. So we'll, our Buddy will say, Buddy Willie write, you know, through yeah. the internet. They'll send song, And if they get a song, Willie will go, just cut the track and then, you know, I'll. I'll record it when I come there, whatever.
1: Wow. Like, Do you think he ever shows up and just doesn't like the track? No. <laughs> <laughs>
2: he's,
1: he's into it.
2: Yeah, yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't dislike anything.
1: <laughs> cool. Another record I wanted to ask you about is uh, one of my favorite records of all time, actually, is that Teatro record. That's
2: yeah, mine there. too. I just was making a metal note of that. Um, can, you, can you tell me a little bit about that experience? Yeah, that was coming. You know, Daniel Anwar, who uh, produced that and uh, put together... Some guys, uh, t- Tony Mangurian, who was uh, like a utility guy that he'd used on some of the Dylan and YouTube stuff, yeah. and uh, Victor Andrizio was a drummer. Yeah. A- and there was only one drum kit, so they split the drum kit up, and here are these two guys: one's playing the kick and the snare, and the other's playing a hi hat. And uh, I think that's—I can't. Maybe it was kick and a hi hat, and the other one playing with snare and some cymbals. So they had this one kit set up and two guys sitting in front of it. There was no bass player on it. Yeah. Um, and Brad Meldow played Vibes and Piano.
1: There's no bass player on that whole record?
2: There's one song with the maker, which was a track that was cut earlier. Yeah. But on Teatro, there's no bass. Yeah, we were going to cut it without a bass player, and, and Dan was going to overdub the bass later. And, uh, but no, they, he never did, and there's no bass other than that one wow. song.
1: Yeah, so I guess like the Wurlitzer sort of takes that role on a little bit. You don't mm-hmm.
2: and you don't Bobby really... was playing that, or Brad Beldow, who was you know an incredible jazz yeah. pianist.
1: Yeah. Um, how did you record that? Like, were, were you were you guys set up? Like, I can't imagine Lanois was anything other than like some sort of live setup situation. Yeah,
2: we were in, in this theater in, in Oxnard, California that played. Um, um, you know, Spanish movies, Mexican movies, yeah. and he had bought this building or was leasing this building, and the screen was still there, and they'd still play movies while we we're recording, so we were set up in one big room, and the, as far as separation, there were like big heavy couches and leather seats, and that was kind of, we'd set up, you know, around the furniture, and that kind of uh, blocked the sound, you know, so we get some separation, but even the, even the control board was in the room with us. So we were all sitting there where we could have eye contact and didn't worry about separation at all. And there was really no overdubs. Right, right. And you have Vim Vendors filmed it. So you could actually, if you Google that, you could actually see the recording sessions.
1: Yeah, that seems to come and go off YouTube. Like there's some, I think there's some uh, fight about whether that gets released or not. But, but yeah, uh, it it was cool. I mean, we did the
2: record. It was so cool. We went back and filmed it a month or so later. With Vim, and we just okay. went through the whole thing again. But I think that the film, I think it's better. I think we did a better job oh, really? <laughs> when we wow. filmed it. Yeah.
1: Oh, cool. Um, and was that like, it's such an unusual setting for Willie to record in. Was that something that you guys, like, was there any uncomfortable uh, getting, mm. used, getting used to it or anything? Or was it just. No, the-
2: we just went, I mean, we, we had a whole week book. We knocked it out in two days. Really? So Willie was comfortable, other than he didn't play Trigger. Uh, Daniel kind of wanted to. Uh, uh, everybody to play an instrument that they didn't normally play. So I played bass harmonic on most of it. I mean, I didn't play a lot of diatonic harp. Okay. The echo harps are on there. The bass harp is on there. Yeah. Willie played, I think, one of Dylan's electrics. And, really? No trigger uh, nope. at all? Nope. Wow. And then Bobby played uh, Wurlitzer.
1: That must have been trippy for her.
2: Yeah. Wow. So Crazy. everybody was out of, you know, and, their, their comfort zone sort and of. And
1: did everyone, well, like... Going in, did you know that that was going to happen or was that something that kind of evolved through the
2: process? No, it just happened when, you know, it's all of by the seat of your pants. Oh, that I mean, the, cool. Daniel may have had this theory, but, you know, he surely wasn't going to tell anybody before.
1: Was there any experimentation done with your sounds on that or did they just leave? No, you it was to just to they your... just
2: had, you know, an old, uh, what was I playing to a 47 probably? And, yeah. uh, that Daniel tripped over and came crashing to the ground,
1: so. Oh man, that's a $20,000 mic.
2: Yeah, (laughs)
1: Yeah, probably sounded better when he knocked it around. Yeah, maybe. They weren't amping you in weird ways or anything like
2: that? No, 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 it was just all acoustic stuff. I I don't really like using a lot of stuff. I just now started using uh, an analog delay.
1: Oh yeah.
2: You're a guitar guitar player, right? Yeah, I am. Yeah, so I'm using that MF, that mini move. Those delay, are cool. which I, I, I love it, uh, and it's got a little overdrive. But I go, I, I use a ribbon mic, yeah, into an AEA mic pre.
1: Like on stage, you mean you use a ribbon?
2: So I use a ribbon. I use a, a buyer M160. Oh, interesting. And uh, into uh, an AEA mic pre. Yeah. That Wes Dooley turned me on too.
1: Yeah, those are cool.
2: And um, uh, go right into the PA with that, yeah. and, then, and then go and I use that delay with, uh, with the overdrive.
1: You just plug the you plug the ribbon mic into the delay pedal, or how do you do that?
2: Um, I don't know how they've got it set up. Obviously, I don't have to plug it in, but uh, the ribbon mic goes into the into the pre, and then out of the pre, probably into the delay, and then into the DI.
1: No amps, though.
2: Well, I have an amp on stage. We go out of the pre into an amp on stage, but it's not mic because my sound is really. I mean, I'm getting a really fat sound with yeah. my rig without the mic. I mean, without the amp, and uh, I've been working with Chris Stapleton and I'm not working with Willie, and they wanted to try an amp sound. So uh-huh. we might, you know, we AB'd by rig within, with an amp, playing right. just into an amp. And it sounded better. And even uh, Alexander Dumble came out the other day. Really? Into L.A. And, you know, I told him, I said, look, man, I'm not really an amp guy, but I appreciate what you do. <laughs> but I, <don't> know, <laughs> I really don't know anything about amps. And we, we talked, we emailed for about a week after that. And he was saying, you know, I mean, he was really liking my tone the way i had set up and he goes you know if you want an amp check out these supros and stuff you know the the reissues are cool okay you know but i I mean if i've got some old fenders at home that if i need an amp sound you can (laughs) get i can get yeah yeah yeah. so but i really don't know that world i mean i don't know speakers i don't know tubes and stuff but i got some really cool you know 50s you know tweed fenders so yeah. I just don't have a place to use them yet. You know, I mean, if I have a session and I need them, which I don't get, I don't use them that much in the studio. With Stapleton we did, but uh-huh. I used this little thing called a lunchbox. It was like a 6 inch speaker. that we used that on the Traveler record.
1: Oh, cool. Okay, so it's sort of gnarly sounding.
2: Uh-huh. You know, if I had played, you know, I'd, I'd love an AC-30 if I played in a loud band, you know.
1: Right, right. You played on uh, Traveler, like were you live in the studio with the
2: band? With no, the- that was Overdub.
1: Okay. Um, working with Dave Cobb on that? Uh-huh. Nice. And and how do you like working with those guys?
2: Yeah, I love it. I love working with Dave. And I mean, Chris is in the studio with us uh-huh. too, but I mean, it was just mainly my overdubs. So yeah, I just hadn't been available when they cut tracks. So uh, yeah.
1: Can you just tell me a little bit about the like the classic, you know, you've, you've been playing with Willie for so long, but like, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, there was, you know, that sort of the classic lineup was really in, in full force with... Paul English and Paul's still playing with you, right? He is.
2: He's still out with us. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um,
1: and Grady Martin was with you for a while, and and yeah, and talk and about Bobby, Grady. You know,
2: I I I'd met Eric Clapton. He'd come to our show, and I said, you know, do you want to do you want me to take you to meet Willie? And he says, no, I want to meet Grady. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, really? Fuck. You know, I, I didn't understand the uh, intensity. I mean, the, the you know how amazing Grady was I mean he was amazing to watch every night but I really wasn't aware of his history
1: really you didn't
2: you know, know. until like no because I wasn't a guitar guy you know so uh-huh. I was watching harmonica players you know but yeah or did I know kind history of country music you know so I mean Grady was with us for 10 years so I I learned but when he first started playing he was you know, just a guy he was just a guy that you know and it was very quiet he always stood in the back and never pushed himself out you know, really? but he did give me the, the best advice anybody's ever said about which playing. Is, which was what? He'd, he'd glare play. at me and he'd say, man, he said, smoke a cigarette. He said, take that damn thing out of your mouth. You play too much. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, and then Charlie McCoy told me he told him the same thing about 10 years before.
1: <laughs> it's his thing with harmonica playing. Yeah, maybe just, well. Maybe he just
2: didn't like harmonica. <laughs> no, you just know we're true. We do, we play too damn much. You know, it was, it was so true. I said, Grady, why didn't you tell me that like 10 years ago?
1: Yeah, so he was with the band for ten years. That's crazy. Because uh, I, I know in the in the studio, I've talked to people that worked with him, you know, back in the heyday of you know Charlie McCoy. One of them, but um, he he was an overbearing presence in the studio. But on but on stage yeah. with Willie, he was just kind of a chill guy in the back.
2: Chill guy in the back. That's right.
1: Did he play? Like, was he playing a lot of leads and stuff back then, or like he would how did... take
2: solos? Yeah, I mean, he would take solos on Stardust. But he would just play like diamonds. He would just play chords and stuff. Yeah, then when he would take a solo, especially like on Stardust, it was amazing.
0: So
1: he left the band eventually, or did did he die? Is that what happened?
2: Yeah, he died. I mean, he, yeah. yeah, he he retired and then he died.
1: And there was no talk of replacing him. There was there ever nope. another guitar player?
2: No, because we didn't. We, we we were there. He was there for being Grady. He wasn't there because we needed a guitar player.
1: Okay, so Willie just liked the hang.
2: Yeah, and, and we liked what he played. But who are you going to read? Play them with, you know, Grady Martin. Was, I mean, uh, Reggie Young wasn't available, and you know, it was like—I uh, mean, it was a personality. You know, it, it was Grady Martin. It wasn't our guitar player. Right. All you need is Willie and that guitar. So, yeah, man. Everything else is just kind of icing on the cake. So it's not like if I leave, they're not going to replace it with another harmonica player. You know. Right. Right. Um, you know, you want you want sprinkles on that thing, or you want strawberries? You know. <laughs>
1: How often are you touring these days? Like, are you doing like a hundred, two hundred gigs a year? What's no? With Willie, we'll like? probably
2: do eighty dates, uh-huh. and then uh, I've got another twenty that I'm doing with Stapleton.
1: Okay, Dave Cobb's in the band right now, I guess. Uh-huh.
2: Dave Cobb, and, his, and then his fabulous rhythm section. Amazing. So you, yeah. will just,
1: when Willie's off, you'll
2: just hook up with those guys wherever they, they just go out on weekends. So when Willie's off, I, I do Thursday, Friday, Saturday with them.
1: Oh wow, cool. So it seems like Willie's pretty pro- prolific these days, too. Like, he's churning out records. He can't... Yeah, talk. second one in a year.
2: That's crazy, you
1: know? man. Like, w- and, what? what's that process like? And, like, do you talk... Do you know what's coming up as far
2: as, you know... Yeah, like, you know, an idea of what he wants to do. You know, it's like he gets... You know, by the time we finish a record, it takes so many months to come out. He's already ready for... Them. You know, by the time it comes out, he's over that record. You know, yeah, he's ready yeah, yeah. to move on to the next one.
1: Does he feel pressure to record or anything, or he just likes? No, he
2: likes to, either. He likes to do it, or he doesn't. He wants to get in there and record all the time, or it's like, no, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do this anymore. Uh-huh. And I mean, case- we're not doing it for the label. Luckily, we're with Sony Legacy, and they put out stuff when they can. I mean, you know, it's 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 they're pretty, uh, you know, accommodating to yeah. his whims. That's cool. They need to be. Yeah. It's and he likes a... to record. You know, I mean, he doesn't like the process necessarily, but he likes to have a record out. So it's not okay. like he's going to go in and we're going to spend a month, you know, writing and re- recording in the studio. That's not it. You know, cut the track and then I'll come in and I'll do my part.
1: Wow. That's crazy. I didn't realize he would work that way. So even like Last Man Standing going back like a year or two or whenever that was, that's a pretty loose and funky sounding record. I mean, it's a great rhythm section and stuff, but was that done the
2: same way? Like all Yeah. Last Man done... Standing was that uh, we cut the tracks without him. Yeah. I mean, there might have been, it's, I can't remember if any of the songs he was there. Every once in a while, he'll be in town and we'll cut some tracks. I mean, usually it's like, I want to sing on the song, but, and you know, he'll, he'll write a song and want yeah. it cut. And, you know, instead of bringing the studio guys down to, to, to Austin, we can just cut it easy in, uh, in Nashville. And then right. Buddy flies in with a hard drive. And, you know, because Willie's got a nice studio in Austin.
1: Oh, right. Okay. So he just does it there at
0: home and he's more comfortable. Mm -hmm. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. All from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save ten percent on your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P.
1: Obviously, done a lot of other things in your career. Um, there's that string of amazing Emmylou Harris re- records in the '70s that that you played on, like. Quarter Moon and Luxury Liner. They're some of my favorite records, too. And just
2: Yeah, mine, too. Here, There, and Everywhere is probably one of my favorite recordings of all time. Yeah, yeah. And we recorded those in a house uh, in Beverly Hills with a mobile truck, with a mobile recording truck outside in the parking lot. I'd heard about that. That lived there at the house. So, yeah, it was Brian Ahern, her husband's uh, uh, truck. And there was a little overdub studio in the, fr- in the nose of the truck. Uh-huh. And then the uh, the middle part portion was the uh, the neve boards, and in the back were the Studer tape machines. Wow! And they ran all the cables in the house, so the drums were in the living room. Let's see. Uh, um, I think everybody was pretty much set up in the living room. I was set up in a shower, <laughs> uh, in a shower stall really? off the uh, off the main you know part of the because house because it sounded cool. Yeah, I recorded. All- yeah, I recorded all Emmy loose stuff on in a shower.
1: That's crazy. Was that just like a sonic choice or just because there was nowhere else for you to be?
2: Yeah, both probably. <laughs> but we liked the, the sound of that. And it was, I used electro Electrovoice, an RE20 uh-huh. microphone, you know, like one of the old radio mics yeah. like the DJs used to use. Yeah,
1: totally. And would those records have been done
2: pretty live? Oh, well, Emmy's stuff was overdubbed. I played, I well, I can't remember what was what. Some stuff I overdubbed, some was live. Mm-hmm. Uh, we cut Stardust in there. So that was all live.
1: You mean Stardust, the Willie Nelson record? Uh Uh-huh. Oh, really? In that same house? Yeah, with
2: Booker T. That's
1: a cool record. I forgot about that one. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, Stardust, Teatro, and uh, what was the other one um, that you talked about? Redheaded Stranger? Oh, yeah, Redheaded Stranger. Like my favorites, I guess. Um, But I do like this last one. Is it Last Man Standing? Yeah. Because it's that song, uh, Something You Get Through, that I think is really beautiful.
1: That is a good song. I saw some note about about you playing on a Motley Crue record as well. Is that
2: true? Yeah, yeah. Smoking in the Boys Room. played on that? Yeah, that's my solo on that. (laughs) How the hell did that come about? You know, I got uh, a call from Tom Werman, who was producing them. I had played on a Blue Oyster Cult record previous to that. Mm -hmm. And he... I was living in LA and he said, Oh, they were doing this song. And I think Vince Neal, you know, the lead singer, was playing a little harmonica, but they, he didn't really, the band didn't really like the solo he played on it. So they asked me if I'd come in and do it. They were all very nice. So I dealt with Tommy Uh mostly. Yeah. Um, Who was very sweet in the studio. And this is their heyday. So it was pretty fucking crazy. Was it? But so I did the studio, the session, did the solo. And then Vince plays the very last lick on the song you know just kind of an ending thing Uh and i think he got heavy metal instrumentalist of the year award for that (laughs) i got no mention oh i got my credit on the record was additional harmonica by
1: oh my god mickey raphael but that's you playing everything except the last note
2: yeah which you don't even well the last note on the song i played the solo so you could just (laughs) if you listen to solo that's that's me
1: oh my god One other record I wanted to ask you about is that one with Winton Marcellus. You'd sort of brought it up before, but um, was that something, like when you do something with with Winton where it seems like, you know, a a bit more arranged, maybe a bit more precious as far as like how the songs and the changes go, are you having to like really work on your parts or anything for that?
2: Or are you just still... Well, those were all live too. Both those records were live records. So yeah, I asked him, I said, you know, because we shut up, he had charts and everything and he says, you know... uh, i don't know how to write for the harmonica so i'm just going to tell you when to play so he had ideas but not he didn't have musical ideas he goes no he goes i've got no clue to write to <laughs> what, what to tell you to play plus there were blues songs so they were ray charles songs yeah, so yeah. you know you want to play off the melody and he goes i'm just going to write you know when your time is to play so we rehearsed a bunch yeah and but but I play it different every time. There's you know if I take a pass and play it, I'm not going to play it the same way. The next time I play, I, I, I attempt you know I play it. It's going to be a little different. Of course. Um, and then what, what was interesting is that when we were playing live on the on the, on the uh, Ray Charles one with with uh, Nora, which was a little no, it was pretty structured. I guess um, you take a solo like when it's my turn. You know, um, piano would take a solo, and then the sax would take a solo, and then I'd take a solo then went with solo. So it really showcased the musicians mm-hmm. in his band. Yeah. Uh but you know you take like well, with us I mean like in a country song you take one pass or you take a half a solo and pass it on to somebody else or you take a whole solo you know your solo would be like one time through you know the verse. Yeah. With uh these guys, you'd play it three or four times. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like, How long do I play? He goes, play as long as you know stretch it, maybe play as long as you want. Like the first record we did with them, I would take one solo. Uh-huh. And then the other guys, you know, the horn player, would take you know, play it two or three times. Yeah. And uh it just I couldn't get locked into that, you know, where you just keep playing. Um you know, being up by the second record I got it. Yeah, you know, plus we're live, so that's kinda of showcasing. Um you know us as musicians. Yeah,
1: does that happen much with Willie? Where he, where you get extended solo breaks, or is it all pretty contained? No, nah, we
2: just take one solo because he puts a lot of songs in it. You know, and yeah. I I play on every song, so I don't need to take three or four solos. I think it's you know right. one's enough. Yeah, because we're kind of showcased on every two.
1: Yeah, of course. I'm just curious about your your life on the road, like with that situation. Like I know you've been touring for years and years, and you mentioned like in the early days it was. It was you guys driving your own cars. And, and I'm sure you've had a, a number of interesting touring vehicles over the years and things like that. But what is the, what's the touring situation like now? Like, Do you go out? Uh, are you all in a, in a bus together? And, and like, what's your, what's your general day-to-day life like out on the road
2: these days? Yeah, well, like right now I'm on the road. I mean, we have three buses. Uh-huh. Willie and his sister uh, are in a bus and his daughter and his wife. Yeah. Are in a bus, and then I'm on myself and Paul English, and uh, our, our tour manager and our security guy, uh-huh. and uh, Tom, who's a guitar tuner and piano tuner. Okay. Are on my bus, and then uh, the crew guy, then Kevin, the bass player, is on what we call the crew bus. It was really set up with smoking and non-smoking. Okay. So it's not like it's split crew and band. Right. But the buses go over early in the morning. Uh uh-huh. um, You know for. To set up, and then I usually head over, you know, at noon or three o'clock in the afternoon. Um, we don't do sound checks; our crew does our line checks for us.
1: Okay, so there's no there's no sound checking at all. You're just walking no,
2: through. not not really. Yeah. No, especially now because we we're set up. It's a this outlaw festival. We go on last, so our gear goes in first, and they're line checking at nine a.m. Okay, you know, so yeah.
1: you don't need to be there. Um, are you doing night after night after night, or, or does Willie need to have space in between gigs?
2: No, there's space. I mean, we could, but it's just the way it's this tour is set up. What we, uh, well, we did at one, we, we've we been doing weekends, but then we fill in the weeks. I mean, we did the Outlaw Festival, which is Sturgill, Willie, Tadeshi Trucks, Van Morrison, and us, and uh, Luke's band, Promise of the Real, yeah. Willie's Kid, yeah. um, and Micah. So that's we're kind of doing that. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then on Tuesday, last Tuesday, we did a gig with Van at uh, in New York at Forest Hills, um, you know, the tennis arena. Uh-huh. So I mean, we go out for like this is a ten day, ten gig tour, and probably take two weeks. Okay, so we might work three days on and a day off or something. Or next week we're we're off. I go to New York Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We do uh, Colbert. We will leave Thursday. And to go to Boston, and then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we play.
1: Okay, that's pretty. That's pretty heavy for for a guy that's in his eighties, man.
2: Yeah, but you know what? He want you know. You got to give him a, a day to rest, but not two. He doesn't want two days off. Okay, that's cool. Ever. <laughs>
1: um, well, I don't want to keep you <clears throat> much longer, but um, I, I did wonder if you could maybe just tell me, like, I know throughout the years you've had like all these amazing touring buddies of his along for the ride. And, you know, people like Leon Russell and Chris and Merle Haggard and stuff. I just wondered if you had any personal favorites uh, or, or any like good tales from the road of some of those people that have, that have graced the buses over the years.
2: Yeah. You know, Roger Miller oh, yeah. was one that was around and We did a record with him and I remember I picked him up at the airport and drove him out to the studio and it was kind of a long drive and, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I was a big fan of his, but I, I kind of I knew him too. So, you know, I wouldn't be in a, too much of a fan So you're driving, and something, you know, if you don't have a lot to say, we weren't really making just, uh, you know, it's okay to be quiet, not to talk the whole time. Sure. And I knew he was tired. So I just kind of, you know, we just drive and enjoy the Texas Hill Country. And then just out of the blue, he just says, you know, I give my right arm to be ambidextrous. <laughs> I mean, that just came out of nowhere, and I thought, ah, this is... Sounds like one of his songs. Yeah, this is going to be a fun day.
1: (laughs) The other guy that um, I know Willie was tight with, I don't know if you ever got a chance to hang out with him, was Sinatra. Like, the whole new record is sort of a a nod to all the Sinatra repertoire. Was he somebody that was around a lot, or did...
2: No, I don't think... We played a gig with him. I mean, Willie didn't hang with him. They did a record, you know, they record together. And, uh, you know, it was like a professional uh relationship and then we played his last gig ever really uh a, a benefit of fundraiser in palm springs uh-huh. and we played and then sinatra played so willie talked you know willie would talk to him but uh uh-huh. you know sinatra wasn't it did not hang okay whatsoever
1: uh, okay so what's what's next for you? Like, obviously, you've made a lot of sacrifices in your own career as well, like by by focusing on Willie's music for for many years. But you've uh, you've kept really busy with doing other sessions and stuff as well. But do you do you do any of your own stuff? Like, do you ever think about making your own? You records know,
2: I or? need to, but no, it's just I, I just don't have any burning melodies in my head that I've got to put down. I've been wanting to get together with. Uh, well, I, you know, I did uh, my first. First solo gig was the other day. The uh, Country Music Hall of Fame uh-huh. kind of honored me in their National Cats okay. a series, so I did a, like an hour and a half interview yeah. at the auditorium, you know, at the Hall of Fame, and then I had to play. I played four songs that I'd never done that before. I'd never put a band together, so I got the rhythm section for my morning jacket uh-huh. nice. and uh, um, and uh, Dwayne Eddy awesome. on guitar. Awesome. So you know that was kind of I didn't uh, you know first time I stood in the middle. I didn't particularly love it really you know uh yeah that must
1: be that must be weird for you yeah after so many years of being like like a side guy
2: basically yeah Yeah. it's not my thing i don't really want to Uh work that hard to to do it but um
1: what about sessions you like keeping busy doing a lot of other stuff as well yeah i do
2: like sessions i i kind of yeah i I like doing sessions i guess but i'm so busy now i've kind of priced myself out of the out of the session business because I'm just too busy to do it, uh-huh. and I'm an you know I, I I do it at home. I've got my my Pro Tools rig, but I'm not an engineer, and it's a damn hassle to to do that. You know, so if it's a if it's I mean, I get calls from people you know to play on their records and stuff, and I used to do it all the time, yeah. and for nothing, and uh, it's just like why bother? I'd rather get out on my bike and do something. So, you know, I'm not really turning down any sessions, but if it's something I've got to do, yeah. At home, you know, if somebody's in a studio, I'll do it. If I've got to be the engineer, I really don't want to mess with it that much. Right.
1: Um, yeah. You want to, so you want to waltz in and get her, get her done and get out the door.
2: Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I've I, unfortunately been turning stuff down uh-huh. just because, uh, just because I want to, you know, I kind of overbooked myself on tour, and I just need some downtime. Yeah. You know, and I'm not a quick engineer. You know, I'm not fast when I do this stuff. Right. So,
1: uh, yeah,
2: you know, it takes me longer to set my set up my Protos rig and set. I mean, set up that computer. But I'm getting ready to score a film with uh, really Mark, Mark Orton, who did who scored uh, Nebraska.
1: Right. Uh, what's that all about? Do you know anything about the? Film? Well,
2: yeah, it's about a a doctor, a research scientist at MD Anderson that. Uh, his team discovered the, or it's the last, the most recent protocol for uh, uh, melanoma, and he's been up for the, you know, the rumors that he's getting the Nobel Prize in Medicine. His name's uh, Jim Allison, mm-hmm. so he's a research scientist at MD Anderson, and uh, he was on the cover of Texas Monthly, a big story about him, feature story recently, and they said this may be the guy to discover the cure for cancer. So it's a doc on him and he's actually a harmonica player he comes out and sits in with us periodically. oh harmonica. really yeah whenever we're in you know houston area or something okay and so he's a real interesting guy and the uh, company that does documentaries is you know hired me to uh, score this film
1: Great. And how do you approach the scoring process? Do you I know?
2: don't know. I, I hired a real composer. You did? <laughs> I, I, yeah. I went to my friend Mark and I said, Hey, I got this gig. Yeah. I said if I if I bring you this job, can we do it together? And you know what you're doing, but you know, it's about the harmonica. So score it. Um, do it. Yeah, yeah. So I mean he'll he'll talk me through it. I mean, I'll have to look at the film and yeah. I have I got an engineer that I'll sit with that'll you know, so I don't have to do everything. But right. I mean, So a lot of it I'll do from the road. You're sort of
1: set up to do that on the bus or whatever. Yeah,
2: he'll set me up the first time with, a, with the movie, yes. you know, so I can do it on my laptop and I'll have somebody so I really don't have to worry about, you know, uh, how, how it's done. Um, I mean, I got basic recording skills, but, you know. I had never worked with film before, so well, especially when you're trying to
1: trying to do something creative like that. It's the last thing you want to be. Yeah, I think so. I
2: think it's better. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll do that, and then uh, just send ideas back and forth to each other. Yeah, and um, make it happen. Yeah,
1: I hope so. Well, that sounds exciting. That's cool. Well, um, thanks so much uh, for talking to me today, man. I really appreciate it. It's uh, okay.
2: Appreciate it. Okay, Steve.
1: Okay. So. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I did making it. Thanks for rolling with the crappy audio quality. And don't forget to tell your friends about the show and subscribe on iTunes and whatever else you can do. And we'll see you next week for another chilling rendition of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, B.C. for his help with research. And we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers.